Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 3rd, 2022. Uh, talking to you from a, a somber United States. I think that might be the best word to describe it. Um, we're still reeling in this country and perhaps around the world from the various mass killings. Washington Post leading with a piece about angry young men and guns, suggesting that there's some issue of the prefrontal cortex, which triggers, to use that word carefully, young men to kill people um, on a massive scale. Um, but we're reeling in other ways as well, I think, in the United States this week. I wrote a piece about TikTok, in particular in terms of the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp uh, court case this week about uh, violence, or supposed accused violence of Depp towards Heard. A lot of women are very outraged, I think, by the court case and by the, the verdict. Uh, Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times suggesting that the case, the verdict, was a travesty. Um, and Charlotte Proudman in the Washington Post, both, of course, left of center newspapers, tend to perhaps be a little bit more sympathetic with the female on this front, believe that the Depp Heard verdict is a gag order. This is this issue is, of course, about violence, sexual violence, violence against women. Um, and today we're going to be talking about violence against women. My guest is um, a man who's dedicated his life, I think, both in an emotional and an intellectual sense to figuring out who killed Teresa, who killed his sister. Um, his sister was called Teresa Alor, and she was murdered uh, when they were both teenagers. He has a new book, or it was a Two, two, two years ago, it came out as a book. It's um, it's now out as a paperback. It's co-authored by John Law and Patricia Pearson. And John is joining me today. John, uh, where are you talking to me from? Hey, Andrew, I'm talking to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Right. Uh, John, I know that the, the, the mass murders in America that need, now seem to happen every few days, and this... Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing are, are different in a sense from the murder of your sister. But does this chill you, this endless barrage of news, of tragedy about violence and murder in America? You live with it more than most, but many other people, unfortunately, tragically, have gone through what you, you've been through. Yeah, on a, I'd say on a personal level... Um, being the father of three daughters and, and one who is four days away from graduating from high school that, you know, certainly wonder, why don't you just skip those last four days that I think goes through everyone's mind. Um, and, and also, um, you, you know, my sister's murder is a case from the province of Quebec in Canada, and we're not uh, immune to mass murders as far back as 1989, the case of Mark Lepin, who went into Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal and and systematically uh, with with an assault rifle murdered 14 women because they were women. 
So this is something I think that is a, is uh, it, it's not the American phenomena is is certainly. Yeah, and I uh, probably my introduction slightly misrepresented, as I said. Um, perhaps we might r rather than talk about um, the United States, we might talk about uh, North America. John, th this book involves enormous emotional baggage on, on your part, Wish You Were Here, which you co-wrote uh, with Patricia Pearson. There's a remarkable story there, too. T tell me about uh, the book, why, why you chose to write it. Uh, wish, Patricia and I had, had worked on a series of articles for one of Canada's leading national papers, the National Post, called Who Killed Teresa? in 2002 and, and just to uh sorry to um yeah. ju just to remind our audience patricia pearson is as it happens a former girlfriend of yours when you were a teenager growing up but now is um uh, uh a very accomplished writer uh on this subject right um but by chance you know we were boyfriend and girlfriend in, in high school so she knew this case on a personal level by chance she became a crime writer following cases in in canada most notably the paul bernardo carla homolka case uh, anyone who covered that was was certainly traumatized so we had a long history and, and we did this series of articles back in 2002 called who killed Teresa." Uh, back when when newspapers would do these in large investigative journalism pieces on on things like this, um, so and we've just kind of felt that there was unfinished business there, that that there was probably um, a lot that needed to be said about other cases and as you point out, um, misogynistic uh, tones from police forces about the disappearance and murders of women. So we embarked on this project. So, again, not everyone will be familiar with the, the tragic story of your sister, Teresa Allure. Please tell us about it. And, and I know you have to be a little careful, probably both from an emotional point of view, but also you don't want to give away all the secrets in the book. Right. So, so tell us uh, at least an introduction to, to what happened to Teresa Allure, your sister. Sure. I think in, in a nutshell, uh, Teresa was 19 years old. When she decided to go back to school, she attended a small rural campus uh, college um, in 1978. And about six weeks in, uh, on November 3rd, 78, she disappeared. Uh, she, it, it, a typical routine Friday for her. She's just attending classes. Um, and then when, you know, was supposed to spend the weekend with friends and studying, and she didn't show up. Um, so there was this about five and a half month prolonged process of her not being anywhere and a lot of speculation about whether she was a runaway or she, God knows what she was, um, according to authority figures. Um, but what they tried- How well, Joe, how old were you at the time? I was 13 going then transitioned to 14. And what are your- core memories thinking about that first weekend when you heard the news yeah core core from from that time i i found out from my parents uh, obviously um that teresa was missing and 
we lived in a different province at the time. So the next thing I know, you know, I'm in a car and we're making about a 12 hour drive to this foreign place. Um, and, and, and it was just very, very confusing. I mean, my parents were, uh, you know, in a state of just apoplectic fear and, and being told, told things by school administration and by, uh, and by the police that didn't really add up. And all of it seemed to be to obfuscate and to push the blame back on the missing person and to not have any you know, responsibility themselves. Your book is, in some ways, I guess, an indictment uh, of the police and of their management of this case. What did they do wrong? Were they simply disinterested? Did they not trust the idea that your sister might have been murdered? I would say that's part of it. I, I think they didn't understand the, the the very nature of sexual murder. I mean, hers was not the only case of its kind at the time. There were two other young women who, under similar circumstances, had disappeared and and showed one, one of them were obviously quite obviously strangled to death and 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 murdered. Uh, the other one. Uh, questionable. But I think a lot of this, you know, the, a lot of the talk at that time was when this happened was there was a sexual maniac out there. And, you know, a lot of the, the idea must have been somebody who escaped from a mental institution because who else would, would do this? And not really an understanding that that kind of person could be the product of your community and, and could have been, been bred right there in, in, in a very small town. So there the was terms, that misunderstanding. John, uh, last year I had John Douglas on the show, and I, I, I'm sure you know his work. I do. Um, one of America's leading investigators of this kind of killing. He has a new book out, When a Killer Calls, a haunting story of murder, criminal profiling, and justice in a small town. So there are, or there were, American police who got it. Was there something about the Canadian police? Were they too local? Wouldn't they be able to call someone like Douglas, who who was working at the time? Well, there's a great deal of pride there. Uh, certainly, you know, the RCMP calling on the, uh, you know, the the FBI for help uh, alone, and then you and you add on to, into that Quebec police, which were. You know, the notion of the Sûreté de Québec in Quebec or the Sûreté Nationale in France. France, there's a there's a lot of pride there about there, and and great deal of difference between you know French investigative techniques and English English. You know, Robert Peel and this idea of sort of mm, did you, were, were, were any of the policemen called Quasa No, no, none of them. None of them were called uh, uh, that, but I think a lot of them, you know, as I said, there's just a lot of pride and a lot of belief that they could figure it out. And they they quickly determined when she was found, her body was found in a ditch five and a half months later, that that they they knew best that she must have died of a drug overdose because she had some experience with recreational use of drugs and therefore... It was her own fault. And Didn't they do a post-mortem, though? Did they find drugs in her body? Well, this is the thing. Of course they did. They did a toxicological report um, and found no drugs on in her system. 
today's police, when you ask them about that, say they've they've never heard of a of a of a police officer going against the evidence like that, which they did, which then leads you to believe, well, was there something more there than just incompetence and inexperience? So five months after the murder, the local police essentially wrote the case off, blaming your sister. Then what? Well, I, I think then there's a there's a period of um, uh, wrongly informed life lessons. I mean, for me, the lesson that I took away from that was just say no to drugs or something like that, because that seemed to be, you know, if somebody was telling me that it was a drug overdose, then it must be true, right? Because the police are yeah. saying it and the, the school is buying into it. And then eventually my parents are buying into it. How did your parents deal with the police? Were they um, were they suspicious? Were they unhappy or did they accept? They were ter- terribly unhappy. It was confrontational the entire time. I mean, they, 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 they left the experiences as if, you know, we've come here and, and they... We had lived in in the province of Quebec for 14 years, so we had dealt with it, but not 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 with the police. Um, and they came out of that experience just feeling gaslit, quite you know, to use a, you know, it's kind of an overused term nowadays. But certainly that they were that they had been exploited and they had been mistreated. And then, of course, you began your own research with. Patricia Pearson, your ex-girlfriend, wish you were here. How did that start? You know, I, I think the, the the germ of it was was certainly having children of my own, and then you begin to question, okay, uh, when they get of a certain age, what are you going to tell them about this story about what happened to your sister? And do you and just have one sister? How many uh, siblings do you have? I have. Teresa, and then I also have an older brother, Andre. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so this was several years later. I mean, how, how many years after the murder did you start doing your own investigation? Easily 20 years. I mean, I was in my 30s when I, when I first sort of said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to take it for granted what people are telling me. I'm going to find my own answers. And, and that began, so can I see the documents? You know, can I see the proof that it's a drug overdose? Oh, well, there is no proof. In fact, there's a document that says the contrary to that. Well, can I see where she was found? Oh, that's interesting. And she was found there in her underwear? Well, that's interesting. So all of this began to sort of inform for me an an alternate narrative, which I believe is the truth. And then what about the role of uh, Patricia Pearson? be actually would have been good to have her on the show as well. Maybe we can talk to her another time. Um, how did you divide your labor? Well, Patricia had a lot of contacts with key people. For instance, she knew a criminal profiler or a geographic profiler named Kim Rosmo, uh, who, who was of, of some fame. She, she knew some criminologists at Simon. Fraser University in, in, in Quebec, who had actually interviewed serial sexual offenders all through Quebec. 
so she knew these people and could put a, put me in contact with them and and because i was the victim's brother i i i had a access to police that normal people wouldn't really have so i i was able to get documents and then she was able to facilitate discussions so we kind of divided it that way was there a moment when you began to realize that that your suspicions were right was there one moment when you began to think yeah this they clearly got it wrong and there was a killer and and, and this is someone we can identify there there was it was a you know and the epiphany happened for both Patricia and I at the same time in the same location, we had decided to travel to where she um, had lived and where she died. And we were standing in this cornfield um, where just adjacent to that, she was kind of found in this, in this culvert of water and, and, and just kind of assessing the circumstances of this place on, on this day under these circumstances, found in her underwear, face down, her, her clothing never found, her wallet found 10 miles away. The, the wallet is key because the wallet found 10 miles away is, is what really tells you that, that a crime of a crime has is, is taken place. Together, we sat there and we said, that, well, this, this wasn't an overdose or an accident or an allergic reaction, which were all things we were told. We said, this was a murder. And then again, uh, as I said, we did a show with John Douglas on Larry Jean Bell uh, and his discovery of, of Bell. When did you begin to realize that your sister had been killed by a serial killer? Well, that became the nagging thing when, as I say, there were, there were three other murders in the area within a 30 mile radius within a 19 month period. That that was something my parents didn't know, but that I discovered. Uh, and of course, the first question was, were they ever solved? And the answer to that was no, they're still unsolved. One murder, one, one death, although I believe it's a murder. Um, uh, but the one very conclusively, as I said, uh, that was when when I began to say, well, wait a minute. And then, then, and then there began, you know, from that, there was an iterative process of, well, what other murders in the area at the time? I think eventually I clocked at least eight in the area of a similar nature that I began to think, well, you, you know, this seems to be more than coincidence. There seems to be somebody operating with a, a very similar MO here. I'm not sure how much you want to get into the identity of the serial critter, how you found it, and whether the book's just out in paperback, we want people to read it, but perhaps you might just reveal some of the secrets in, in your narrative. Well, I, I think one thing that I would say is the, the, the person that we begin to focus on in, uh, in, in the book is someone who lived in the area and then was kind of run out of town. And lo and behold, 20 years later, he actually, and, and when he lived in the area, he was known to be a serial sexual predator. He was a serial rapist. He actually went to the next stage and was apprehended in Calgary, Alberta in the 90s for a very real murder um, with, with all of the, the 
you know, all the pieces in the modus operandi fitting together. We never went so far as to say that this person did it. We said this person is very close. And, and I say that because since the publication of the book almost two years ago, there has been a second suspect who uh, seems equally provocative, who may have been working in tandem with the person in the book as a, as a sort of grooming uh, folie a deux situation. So, so it's something that has continued to develop. How much closer have how much closure have you and your family, and indeed your kids and your wife, got from this? Yeah, I I, I think there's been a whole lot of opening of wounds. Um, certainly, and my own family, there's a there's kind of a kind of where does it end, and you know, where, where are you going to stop this? My, my father. My father passed a couple of years ago, but he he was strongly not in favor of what I, I, I'm doing. His he just simply took a different approach um, of of turning the page and closing the. Why world. was he not in favor? He just thought that it, it didn't make any sense. Yeah, it's sort of like, well, you're not going to change anything, so best to move on, and it's only going to give you, you know, bring you grief. And and he's he's got he's got a point there. Do you in any way regret it? I mean, I'm sure some people might be critical. Well, why are you writing these books and podcasts and television shows and making money out of the death of your sister? Does that make you in any way regretful, perhaps, of doing this? Because you've committed in in some ways your life to investigating your sister's death. Well, I I don't regret it. And and I'd say to anybody... I, the first thing I would say to address that is, yes, if, if you, number one, anybody who does these things, and, and I can throw down with anybody in true crime, that's, that's fine. I can swim in that swamp, but, and that, it's fun. People enjoy it. But what I would say to it is, I think you need to reach a point where you confront yourself and you say, okay, from the moment that I take this on and speak for my sister, who is not able to speak for herself, I am, in a sense, exploiting her. And you just need to address that and say, am I comfortable with that or not? And then move on. It doesn't have to be large exploitation. I, I, I think she would question whether it's a good idea to have her, her face on the cover of this book. So that is, that is a struggle. Uh, I, I, on the other end, you know, my, my um, approach has been less about chasing serial killers and more about holding police to account. How much do you think you've got into the minds of the killers in terms of making, and I use this word carefully, sense of what they did? Because, of course, you can never really make sense of it. And perhaps also addressing how to stop and confront these mass killers. When we talked at the beginning about angry young men and frontal, prefrontal cortexes and violence against women, uh, it only seems to have got worse since the death of your sister. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm the brother of a victim and I, I don't want to pretend to be a psychologist or, or, or anything like a professional investigator. I'm, I'm not that. But what I, you know, what I do know is um, with a lot of these people that I've looked at, their, their early circumstances are just horrendous, extreme poverty. Um, 
abuse from family members, from the mother or the father or both, that seems to be a common denominator. So it's, it's instilled at a very early age. Uh, if, if, if they went on to mistreat women, it's probably because they saw an example of mistreatment of women in their own household. Was your sister killed by a gun? No, she was, uh, she was more than likely strangled to death. So what, what are your feelings? And again, this is, I guess, slightly tangential to, to, to your work on, um, on legislation. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, made a speech yesterday talking about congressional action on guns, lots of controversy, some people suggesting that claiming more kids are dying of guns than cars is inaccurate. Do you feel that there is regulation that can be made to sort of avoid the terrible tragedies that you and your family experienced? I think some regulation can be made um, to, so that somebody cannot buy uh, uh, what is an assault rifle on the same day that they go into a, a hospital and, and kill their surgeon. Um, I think that would be a step in the, the right direction without giving up somebody's right to purchase a, uh, an armed weapon. I wonder how much, I mean, the thing that may have changed, what, what year was your sister murdered? 1978. I mean, perhaps the most profound dramatic difference between 1978 and 2022 is the existence of the internet. You have your own podcast. You couldn't probably have done what you've done without the internet. The, the Amber Heard stuff, you know, has created a whole generation of amateur investigators and legal analysts on, on TikTok. What, what has the internet done to us, um, John, that for better or worse, in terms of the kind of violence and, and indeed our obsession with violence, not just the violence itself, but this obsession with violence and crime that seems to dominate much of the internet. I, I just think it's made it faster. Uh, you know, the ability to, to, to express an opinion that quickly it used to be in the old days, right? You'd, you'd write a letter to the editor and you know there'd be some time to really consider whether you wanted to write that letter, and and they could certainly decide whether they wanted to print it or not. Nowadays, it's, it's something quite different. Um, you see, people can, or have the ability to sound off whenever they want on whatever they want. I don't particularly think that's healthy. On the other hand, uh, the access to information is extraordinary. The ability to to search archives and ancestral data and and newspaper archives is uh, affords an opportunity there that uh, just was not. I mean, had my father had that ability and had that desire, he might have been a little more informed about what was going on rather than being left completely in the dark, which he, both my parents were. Are you there a little? I mean, you you live in the world of true crime professionally and personally. Um, is this something that's healthy? I assume you wouldn't encourage your daughters to get involved with this. No, I would not encourage my my daughters to get involved with it. They're aware of it, certainly. Fortunately, they're not they're not that particular. They're not that interested in it. Uh, I, the one thing I do find a little, I don't know why somebody who wouldn't have, you know, a vested interest in this, gets into it, other than, 
you know, the bloodlust of it, of it all. The, the thing that I find questionable more than anything is, is when people try to justify their agency in the game um, for, you know, sort of like, I, I knew someone who was once murdered and therefore this gives me the reason for why, what I do. I think that's a bit of a stretch. You should just, you should just admit that you're, you have maybe an unhealthy fascination with it and, and or that you're ex exploiting and move on rather than trying to find all these, these ways to, to work around to say, you know, why, as I say, you, you have agency and, 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 and you're doing proper justice to the victim and all this kind of thing that I find that to be particularly odious. And John, I'm assuming you've got your own fair share of abuse, threats, other unpleasant communication because of what you're doing. Yeah, I try to walk a line, you know, on my website in the podcast of, you know, I don't, I don't truck in current events or current politics. I, I, I more than often take the approach of these are the facts. If, if you then want to load on to it, you're, if this has something to do with defund the police or not, that's, you're welcome to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to enter that arena. Uh, I rather just explain to, you know, what it is. Um, that avoids a lot of, because otherwise then your message is lost and people just begin to talk about, uh, you know, what side is John Allure on or not. I, I, I've always been pretty independent about, about that kind of thing. So, uh, but yes, I do. I certainly, I think I'm, I'm misunderstood as being anti-police. I'm not anti-police. I just, as I say, I think they should be held accountable. And, uh, and I try and, and I get, yes, I get on a, on a weekly basis, somebody coming forward and, you know, with who obviously is probably in some kind of mental struggle who really shouldn't be contacting me. Uh, finally, John, uh, should there be a police accountability for their screw up, for their irresponsibility on your, your sister's murder? Should someone be accountable? I don't even know if all the policemen are still around. Well, that's an excellent question, Andrew. And yes, some of them are still around. And that's something that I am I'm fighting for. In 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 most cases where you walk through a scenario of who killed Teresa, you're dealing with an offender who is deceased more than more than likely. So so then people sort of say to me, then what does justice look like? Even the police have asked me this. You know, if, you know, if there cannot be a legal process, what does justice look like? I think a holding to account of some of the original investigators who are very much alive, who made some serious uh, errors. I would even go so far as to say um, probably did some things that were criminal in nature themselves, I think is a step in the right direction. Yes. Well, I, I wish I could congratulate you on the book, John. I'm not sure if it's the right word, but it's certainly quite an accomplishment. Wish you were here. A Murdered Girl, A Brother's Quest, and The Hunt for a Canadian Serial Killer, co-authored co by John Allure and Patricia Pearson. It's an important book. It's a terribly sad subject. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's very hard to pass judgment because I... You know, if, if one experiences what you've gone through, only people who have done that, I think, can pass any kind of judgment. Um, what else are you reading, John? I hope you're you're not just reading horrible 
true crime stories. I hope you're reading something to cheer you up in addition no, to wish you were here. I, I, I do. I mean, of the true crime things, you know, I, uh, yeah, there's a lot of it that I like, um, a lot of it I don't like, but I kind of canvas what's around the house right now. A lot of it is influenced from my daughter. So there's a lot of... How old are your daughters, by the way, now? Sure. One is 24, one is uh, 21, mm. and one is 18. Great. Wow, daughters, three girls. That's quite a house. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so there's a lot of, there's a lot of Shakespeare. There's, there's a lot of, you know, Joan Didion recently died. So there's a lot of her essays around the house. Um, I love the, I think he's, was, is in San Francisco or Oakland, Ishmael Reed. The poet, I love uh, an awful lot. Tim O'Brien, the Vietnam um, writer, is, is a great favorite of mine. And, and I bring these up because these are things, that, books that I pass on to my daughters, and then they read them and we discuss them, and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I, I was an English major, so I am a reader. 